of what happens or what part of Zephaniah's preaching probably set up to happen. Um, and again, I'll mention this in the sermon, but there have been 60 years of total neglect of the traditional faith of Israel. Um, it would be like if the whole church looked like the nursery did two months ago before we cleaned it out. Right? Because part of it was that there had been Socratic, syncretic practices. Um, after good King Hezekiah had died, his son Manasseh took the throne and made an allegiance with Assyria. And when you made an allegiance in those days or an alliance, then you adopted the gods of whoever your master was. And so the temple was turned into an Assyrian um, worship site with an astrological uh, um, temple on the top of the on top of the Solomon's temple. An altar to the Assyrian god had replaced the altar to the living god, and um, there was basically 50 years of neglect to the historic faith. Uh, to the point, we'll reiterate this: that they had forgotten the Torah. It's almost impossible to imagine Judaism without Torah, but the book of the law, it would be like if all the Bibles had been thrown into a corner and we forgot they existed, uh, which is kind of ironic in that we have more Bibles available than ever, but we kind of, you know, most Christians act as if they don't really exist. You know, they talk about the Bible, but uh, how much we've actually read is another thing. So this is part of the backdrop and Zephaniah is a preacher early on. So Zephaniah's preaching may have been part of what changed uh, the people around Josiah. So we're going to listen to, I'm going to read you one through seven from chapter one of Zephaniah, and then a few verses of chapter three. It's a short book. It's only three chapters. Uh, you could read it while you're driving home, but don't do that. That would be dangerous, right? So it's very small, very short. Uh, the other thing is we're now in the seventh century, okay? All the prophets we've done up to this point, uh, Amos, Hosea, and Micah were all eighth century BCE prophets. So we're now in the latter part of the seventh century, which is so somewhere in the seven or in the 620s. Okay, this is when this is taking place. All right, listen to the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushai, son of Gedali, son of Amari, son of Hezekiah in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. By the way, what does this remind you of? Noah, exactly. That's exactly what it's supposed to bring to mind, Noah. Matter of fact, in Hebrew, the language kind of echoes what's in Genesis, okay? So that's, everybody would have heard, <laughs> when Zephaniah was started the speech, everybody would have gone, uh-oh, <laughs> okay, because I remind them of it. All right, so here we go. I'm picking up verse four. I will stretch out my hand against Judah, and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every remnant of Baal and the name of every idolatrous priest. Those who bow down the roofs to the host of heaven, that's the astrological worship. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord, but also swear to Melchon, 
those who have turned back from following the Lord, who have not sought the Lord or inquired of him. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has consecrated his guest. And then this is from chapter 3. Woe, soil, defined, oppressing city. It has listened to no voice, it has accepted no correction, it is not trusted in the Lord, it is not drawn near to its God. The officials within it are roaring lions, the judges are evening wolves. They leave nothing until the morning. The prophets are reckless, faithless persons. The priests have profaned what is sacred. They have done violence to the law. The Lord within it is righteous. He does no wrong. Every morning he renders his judgment, each dawn without fail. But the unjust knows no shame. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Lord, in the midst of the many words that are both without and within us, may we turn to you and your unchanging word that we can be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So apparently it's become kind of common knowledge that I, I enjoy a good wine with my food. Okay. All right. and, and I think there's nothing wrong with that, right? Um, matter of fact, uh, was it Benjamin Franklin said, I think if it's, you can see there beer or wine, but I think the original quote is beer, that God gave us beer because he loves us, right? <laughs> right. But uh, al- the abuse of alcohol is the most common abuse drug among adults in the United States. It's, it's guesstimated that the cost of alcohol abuse uh, is equal to about 2.5% of our gross domestic product. That equates to $500 billion a year are engaged or wasted because of alcohol abuse and all the effects. And again, we all know the stories and we all have members of our family and friends whose lives have been, have been, have been so destroyed or disrupted by it. And as bad as it is in the 21st century, it probably was worse in the 18th and 19th century on a percentage basis. And so that's precisely why the temperance movement started. The temperance movement, by the way, what does the word temperance mean? Moderation. And so it began as a reform movement to really deal with a horrific problem uh, that really destroyed the lives of poor and, and many people. But in the 19th century, the same moral zeal that attacked slavery and child labor and was fighting for women's rights, took on the temperance issue. And the temperance movements quickly became the abstinence movement. And it was one thing that both progressive Protestants and fundamentalists agreed upon. Now, I don't have to tell you this, I don't have to go into the failure of the 18th Amendment, right? Failure of prohibition. I have a prohibition story though, all right? So uh, my great Aunt Essie, is one of, was one of the great characters. She's about four foot 10. Uh, up until the age of 90, she ran a gas station and general store. Okay. And uh, she had an Eleanor Roosevelt uh, haircut. It was a character. 
And churches all across America had local chapters of the women's temperance movement. I'm sure there was one, one here as well. And my great aunt Essie was her turn to host the Methodist Women's Temperance Union. Now there's a couple ironies, if not hypocrisies in that. First of all, my stubborn little aunt, great aunt, and her husband, my uncle Walter, ran a speakeasy during Prohibition. Now that speakeasy was kind of a shack, you know, in a little uh, pass, but nonetheless, it was a speakeasy. So Aunt Essie is hosting the Women's Temperance Union in her house. Uh, I'm sure the ladies are all dressed nicely and, and sipping their tea and eating their little tea sandwiches. Although I don't know if you had tea sandwiches in West Virginia, but anyway, nonetheless. All of a sudden, there was a, an explosion that led to a series of explosions. You can hear the shattering of glass, the shattering of wood, and the spilling of liquid. Uncle Water's home brew. One of them had blown up, which led to a chain reaction of them all blowing up while the women's temperature union was meeting in the upstairs. Needless to say, that ended the meeting, and my NSC also uh, was not allowed to ever go to any other temperance meetings. <laughs> Reform. We know it needs to happen. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's hard to do. Go back and think about the words of Zephaniah. The officials are like devouring, or lions devouring the poor. The judges feast on the bones of the oppressed. The prophets are reckless. The clergy are profane and distort the scriptures. <laughs> it takes just a little imagination for Zephaniah to be from the, from the seventh century BCE to sound and resonate with America in the 21st century, right? There's a lot of things in our society that makes us want to cry out to God for justice to roll down. The current Supreme Court, in the name of its, its own conservative majority, is engaged in what they would call judicial reform. However, many of us see what they're doing as overturning hard-fought reforms from over the last 20, 30, 40 years. This points to one of the central problems of any reform. One group or generation's reform often causes or often carries with it the seeds of future problems or extremes from those who try to overturn those reforms or try to reform the excesses of the previous reform, right? Prohibition is the classic example, but there are, there are literally hundreds of them throughout history. It also shows the weakness of top-down reform. You can change the law, but unless you change hearts and minds, no reform is sustainable. Again, just to repeat a little background, at the death of good King Hezekiah, who led the people in listening to the words of Micah, as well as Isaiah, last week's prophet. And he turns 
around. And so under Hezekiah's reign, the people are faithful to Torah and to the worship of the Lord God alone. But as soon as he died, his son Manasseh took over and immediately reversed his father's policies. All right? And he will reign for 56 years. He's living proof that only the good die young, right? And under Manasseh, not only did he reintroduce the worship of foreign gods, particularly bringing all kinds of Assyrian religious practices into the Temple of Solomon, but he persecuted the prophets. Again, the tradition that Isaiah, the Isaiah, if you go over and look at the Isaiah picture, there's a Saul in the bottom. And the tradition was that King Manasseh had Hezekiah put to death by sawing him in half. Okay. He dies. His son, um, Amon, comes to reign. And according to the rabbis, he was worse. <laughs> but he was only around for two years. He's assassinated by his palace guards or by local officials. And then there's a revolt from called the people of the land. The idea that these were people who had maintained the traditional worship and they put the boy King Josiah on the throne. So Zephaniah's voice emerges after years of idolatry, syncretic and immoral practices, including probably child sacrifice, political oppression, killing of the prophets, and neglect of the law. And so Zephaniah, among other voices that we don't have recorded, preach that we need to turn back. And once again, remarkably, they listened. And so you can go back and read this on your own, the first text. This is what happened under Josiah. They, they cleaned out all of the idolatry. And what's really interesting, if you, if, I don't know if you picked this up or not, but it says they rediscovered the law. They have lost the Torah. And from the way that we can read what kind of reform they did, they found the book of Deuteronomy or some sort of early form of the book of Deuteronomy. And so they listened to the book of Deuteronomy and they tried to reorder their society around those principles. So their festivals are returned, the Passover is celebrated, all the idols are taken away, the foreign priests are cast out, some of them are killed. And centralized worship once again happens in Jerusalem. The temple's restored. There's a renovation project. It never has looked better. And for 13 years, everybody was 100% behind Josiah. And then Josiah got himself killed in a battle that he probably shouldn't have fought. And overnight, Most of the people went back to the old ways. Matter of fact, this is where the prophet Jeremiah enters. We're not going to be looking at him, but Jeremiah is preaching in the disaster in the aftermath of Josiah's death. And 10 years after Josiah's dead, after this wonderful reform had changed the whole country, 10 years later, Judah's conquered. The brightest and best are sent to Babylon, which is what our theme is going to be for our vacation Bible school for summer adventure. And then 10 years after that, in, in the midst of a totally insane rebellion, Jerusalem is leveled. The temple is burned to the ground. Most of the people are massacred. And there'll never be another Davidic king 
on the throne again. All of that in a short period of time after such a great and promising reform. Why did the reform not hold? Why is it so hard for us to solve these problems in our country? Why does common sense even not hold the day? Well, you could say there was great disillusionment after Josiah's death. I mean, he's the best king they've ever had. <laughs> and he dies a young man, relatively young man, right in the midst of his prime. So maybe God doesn't care about us. But destroying the idols in the land does not necessarily destroy them in the hearts of the people. King Charles I of England, by all accounts, was a deeply pious man. He once said, public reformers had need first practice on their own hearts, that which they proposed to try on others. And Charles I should know because his head got caught off by a group of these reformers. So, so it, wasn't, it wasn't just a good observation, it was personal. Cromwell. Cromwell and a group of we, we, we would call evangelicals, the roundheads, or who brought an end to Charles I. It's hard to have moral indignation, zeal for change, and humility at the same time. See, I think that's part of the problem. We can talk about the people who don't want to change. But often the problem with reform is found with the people who are trying to bring about the reform. And that's important. It's a, it's a cautionary tale for we who claim to be Christians who are rightfully very disturbed about what's going on in our country and in our world. But how we speak about these things and how we approach them I think is very important. And we can learn from our past. We can learn from Zephaniah, we can learn from our own Christian past in this country. I think there's several irrefutable facts. Okay? I'm not talking about opinions. I'm talking about facts here about the founding and settling of the United States. And one of them was our nation was built on slave labor, period. It's, it's, there's no, there's, that's not being a woke. That's just knowing history. And the other thing is, and this is something that Martin Luther King observed in his 1963 book, and I'm quoting Martin Luther King here, our nation was born in genocide when it embraced the doctrine that the original American, the Indian, was an inferior race. Even before large numbers of African slaves were brought to our shore, the scar of racial hatred had already disfigured colonial society. From the 16th century forward, Blood flowed in the battles of racial supremacy. That's what happened. Okay. Now, it happens throughout history, right? Okay. If any of you have Celtic blood in you, Julius Caesar should be a demonic figure for you. Because if you had to learn Latin, if you had to read the Gallic Wars in Latin, okay, that's basically a genocide of Celtic people. Okay? It's, how we, it's what's history, right? We, we twist things in history. 
we often don't think about what the settling of this country as the genocide of Native Americans. And I realize the disease has killed a lot of people. There were a lot of things going on. But we, that's just part of how this, we're here. We just need to recognize that, okay? And what's interesting, there were Christians from the beginning who spoke out against this. Jonathan Edwards, the great Jonathan Edwards, spoke out vehemently against the treatment of Native Americans. And Christians were very involved in, in speaking out against the ongoing genocide, particularly in the 19th century. And so Christians were involved in two acts of reform to try to save Native peoples. Okay, you may not know this, but I'll give you a quickly one. The Dawes Act was passed in 1887. And good Christians got together and said, what we need to do is give them land and help them be farmers so they could take care of themselves. Okay. How many of you know anything about the Sioux Indians? Okay. Were they farmers? Okay. And, and good Christians, you know, because we have to make sure people behave themselves. So if, if Native Americans don't accept this rule, in 19 years, there was a rule, it's literally 19, I don't know why I remember this, but I do. After 19 years, then that land can be open for other people to buy. Under the Dawes Act, which was promoted by good Christian Congregationalists and Presbyterians and Methodists, under that act, 90 million acres of tribal, tribal land was lawfully taken away from Native peoples because Sioux aren't farmers, and they gave them land that you couldn't farm them. So Christians, in the name of trying to help save the Native American, help take away their land. Even more insidious, and there's a lot being talked about this, was there was this idea, we need to kill the Indian to save the human. So we need to take these Native Americans and turn them into good American citizens. And so the Native American boarding schools were founded. Okay? And most of them were run by Christians. Okay? You may, we get, may get more press about the Catholic ones in Canada, but there were dozens that were run by Presbyterians, Protestants, which included our tradition, Methodist. And I don't need to go through the history of what happened there. Two really well-intentioned movements driven by Christians that led to disastrous consequences for the people they were trying to help. I think we as Christians need to be engaged in making a difference in our communities and world. And sometimes we have victories. If you go back and look at the call to worship, the call to worship was taken from the end of Zephaniah where they're celebrating because the people listened. And we have made progress in some certain really critical areas in our country. I think hearts and minds have been changed around issues of inclusivity and accepting people as they are and being welcoming and looking squarely at the problem of, of prejudice in this country. But we need to be realistic as well. We need to use our power. We need to use our responsibilities. But both our history as a country and histories like Zephaniah are cautionary tales. Even the own church that we're part of, the Reformation, all the problems of American Protestant Christianity, the seeds were sown at the beginning. 
Everything that's going wrong in the church, you could see it was going to happen in the 16th century. So we need to be humble in our engagement to change hearts and minds. There was a quote, I put a quote in this week's blog, and I would just really encourage you to go back and reread that. The idea that, you know, hearts and minds need to be transformed before we can really transform society. There is an editorial in today's New York Times by David French, and he quotes a very well-known story about G.K. Chesterton. G.K. Chesterton was an atheist, he was a journalist, and he had an adult conversion uh, to Christianity. And there was um, the, the Daily Times of London sent out uh, a question to a number of prominent writers, what is wrong in the world? And this is what G.K. Chesterton wrote. What is wrong? In, in one sense, the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is or should be, I am wrong. Until a person can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Until we understand that it's by grace that we need to be transformed, we won't be able to get into the serious business, the long business of preaching and living the kingdom of God in our community and in our midst. We have to work for change. We have to speak for change, but it needs to begin in us. And you know what? It never stops. <laughs> in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's continue our worship and give to God our gifts, our tithes, and our offerings. <laughs>